Second Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bali Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on, on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants as female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please pray with me. 
God, we thank you for this new day and your new morning mercies that we get to experience. God, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you, this opportunity to dwell with one another in the church today and encourage each other. And God, we thank you for this word, this passage of scripture today. And Lord, it's a very interesting passage of scripture. In some ways, it's a very shocking passage of scripture. But God, we believe that all scripture is inspired and it's God-breathed. We believe that every single word, every line on every page is written by you for our instruction in righteousness. That all of it is intended for our good. And so, Lord, we are excited to look at 2 Samuel chapter 6 today. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to each and every one of us. We pray that you would make clear what is here in this text, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds. And that, God, you would ultimately lead us to be worshipers. That we would be a people who honor you and glorify you and worship you with our lives. So, God, we commit our time in your word to you today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would strengthen my voice. And also that my voice would be a reflection of your voice. Lord, that the things that I say would flow from this text of sacred scripture and not from my own thoughts or ideas. So God, we submit ourselves to your authority and your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Please go ahead and grab a seat. A.W. Tozer began his well-known book, The Knowledge of the Holy, with this line. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And there's certainly some truth to that statement because What we think about God will ultimately determine how we approach God and how we interact with God. And so as we begin this morning's sermon, I just want to out of the gate ask you a question. What do you think about God? Or maybe I'll say it differently. How do you think about God? What's your frame of reference? What's he like in your mind's eye when you think about him? C.S. Lewis has been one of the most influential writers for my own faith, as well as the faith of millions of other Christians. I would definitely put C.S. Lewis in the top five uh, most influential writers for me. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he famously portrays Jesus as a lion named Aslan. And early on in the story, the children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who begin to tell them about Aslan. And one of my favorite interactions in all seven volumes of the Chronicles of Narnia, Mrs. Beaver reveals to the kids that Aslan is not a man like they thought, he's actually a lion. Susan is quite troubled by the idea of a lion, and she asks, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver responds, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan 
without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Young Lucy then asks, then he isn't safe? Safe, Mr. Beaver interjects. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. 2 Samuel 6 brings out this complicated portrait of God that Lewis so masterfully depicts. The true and the living God is most certainly not safe. He's dangerous. And yet, he's also good. In the last chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 5, David was made king over all of Israel. And he establishes his royal city, which is Jerusalem, and he drives out Israel's enemies from the land. And now here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, because he's in control and because he's established peace in the land, David turns his attention to the spiritual life of the nation of Israel. And therefore, David decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant, also known as the Ark of of God or the Ark of the Testimony, which was God's earthly throne, back from the outskirts of Israelite territory and right into the center of the nation's capital and the nation's life. So chapter 6 tells us about how David brought the Ark of God to Jerusalem. Let's reread verses 1 and 2. 2 Samuel 6 verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bali, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. The chapter begins with a desire for God's presence. David here is longing for God's presence, and so he brings, he attempts to bring the ark of God to him at Jerusalem. Now let's hit pause for a moment. Let's let's talk about the Ark of God. The Ark of God or the Ark of the Covenant was the most holy and the most sacred object in Israelite worship. It was a wooden box that was constructed and then it was overlaid with gold on every single side. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant was the Law of Moses or the Ten Commandments, also a jar of manna, and then Aaron's rod that had budded and in a miraculous display of God's power. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat, also made of gold. And on both sides of the mercy seat were two cherubim. There was one on either side of the mercy seat, and the cherubim were these, these uh, angelic creatures that were also fashioned in gold. This was considered the earthly throne of God. In fact, look at verse 2. It says, the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So, so that mercy seat there between the two cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant is where God was understood to be enthroned before his people. Listen to what God says to Moses back in Exodus 25 verse 22 about the Ark of the Covenant. He says, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So listen, the ark of the covenant was was the physical space where heaven and earth met. 
and where God's presence was uniquely found. And so David, as 2 Samuel 6 begins, he has this longing or this desire for God's presence to be in the midst of his people. Now stop and think about that for a moment. David had everything you could dream of. He was a king. He was wealthy. He was powerful. He was famous and renowned. He had a massive family. And yet, despite having everything that a person could want, David's not content when chapter 6 begins. David still longed for something. He was desperate for God's presence. A true Christian would never be content with all of the blessings that this world has to offer if they didn't have God. There are plenty of people who want a relationship with God solely for what God can provide for them. So they want the gifts, but they don't have much interest in the giver. And if they could just have all the blessings and everything in their life could go right, they'd be happy with that, whether or not God was involved or not. They kind of look at God almost like God the genie. I'll I'll have a relationship with God so he can grant me my wishes and give me the things that I want. But that's what they're really after. It's the things. They couldn't care less ultimately about God, but not David. David had everything this world had to offer, but he longed for God's presence. And so David selects 30,000 people and they go and they get the ark and look at verse 3. It says, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So they load the ark on this new cart, and they begin transporting it to Jerusalem. And as they begin to transport the ark of God to Jerusalem, something changes. And what changes is they realize in this moment the danger of God's presence the danger of God's presence. This massive company of people are singing and they're celebrating with joy as the cart begins making its journey from the house of this man down toward Jerusalem and everything is going great. They're celebrating, they're worshiping the Lord and everything is going great until the oxen stumble. Look at verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Whoa. What just happened here? Everything was going great. There's a celebration. The people are overjoyed that God's presence is coming with them to the capital city and they're singing and there's dancing and this worship service is happening and then everything comes to a screeching halt the moment that this man Uzzah is struck dead by the Lord. 
I mean, get the picture in your mind. The oxen are pulling this cart and the ark of the Lord is on the back of it. And again, there's a procession of thousands and thousands of people that are rejoicing and celebrating and the oxen stumble and evidently the ark runs the risk of slipping off of the cart and Uzzah and his brother Ahio are accompanying the cart and Uzzah sees the ark of the Lord begin to fall off this cart and instinctively, reactionary, he just reaches out his hand and he tries to stabilize the ark of God. He doesn't want this sacred, precious object to fall and hit the ground. And the moment he lays hold of the ark of God, that's it. God strikes him dead. Now, before we discuss what went wrong, I want us to to notice, I want us to to key in on David's reaction to what he just witnessed. Again, David has this wonderful desire. I want God to be with me in Jerusalem. And he's trying to do everything in his power to accomplish that. And then the Lord strikes down Uzzah and brings the entire party to a stop. What was David's reaction? Well, it's twofold. David is angry in verse 8. Do you see that there in verse 8? It says, and David was angry. So he's angry. And then in verse 9, David is afraid. It says there at the beginning of verse 9, and David was afraid of the Lord. Now, it's not clear whether David is angry with God, whether David is angry with Uzzah, or whether David is just angry because his plans got foiled here. But nevertheless, his ultimate response, his deeper response here is that David finds himself afraid of the Lord. God is not safe. And David's question that he asks reflects that. Look at the question that he asks there in verse 9. It says, David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? I don't know how to safely bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. The Lord is too dangerous. He's broken out against us and struck down Uzzah. And with that, David abandons his project to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. So what happened? What is it that went wrong here in 2 Samuel chapter 6? The first clue is right there in verse 7 for us. You've got to see it. Look at verse 7. It says, And God struck him down because of his error. God did not kill Uzzah for no reason at all. God killed Uzzah as an act of judgment. He struck him dead because of his error. So what was Uzzah's error? The immediate answer is this. He touched the Ark of the Covenant. He touched the Ark of the Covenant. That was his error. In the law of Moses, God gave very clear instructions for how to handle the sacred objects of worship. In fact, the whole temple system in the Old Testament was set up to mediate interaction between a holy God and unholy people. Because these objects in the temple and in the worship of Israel were holy, meaning that they were set apart by God and for God, 
They could not be handled by just any old person or in any old way. They could not be treated like common items. It was to one family and its clans, a family called the Kohathites, that God had given the sacred responsibility of transporting the items of the tabernacle, all of the sacred items, including the Ark of the Covenant. The Kohathites were responsible for doing that every time the tabernacle moved in the Old Testament. So they had the responsibility to move the Ark of the Covenant, but the one thing that they must never, ever, ever, ever under any circumstances do is touch the Ark of God or any of the other sacred objects. Here's Numbers chapter four, verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons, who are the priests, have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary. So the priest would go and they would cover everything. The Ark of the Covenant, the lampstands, the, the table for showbread. They would cover all of that because nobody other than the priest could see it. And after they covered it all, as the camp sets out, notice what it says. After that, the sons of Kohath shall come care, to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. Uzzah was struck down because he violated God's law. He, an unholy man, approached a holy God. That's what his error was. That's what went wrong. Now that might answer our question biblically. Okay, what went wrong here? What happened? Why did Uzzah die? That answers the question biblically, but it might not for all of us answer that question emotionally, right? I mean, for most of us, as we read this story, our hearts sort of empathize with Uzzah. It seems in the story very clear that Uzzah's intentions are pure, as are David's. They want God's presence in Jerusalem. And Uzzah here is trying to help in that process. And when he perceives that the ark of God, the very throne of God is about to fall out of a cart and land in the dirt. Again, he instinctively responds by wanting to steady the ark and hold the ark up. One could argue that Uva was not being irreverent, but rather he had such great reverence for God that he couldn't bear the thought of the throne of God falling down into the dirt. I've been getting physical therapy for my back since the beginning of the year. And my therapist is this pretty young guy and he's been helping me and we've been having conversations every week when I go see him. And, and as a pastor, it's sort of a cheat code to like do evangelism because people are always like, hey, what do you do for a living? And the second you say pastor, they're just like, okay, shoot, now we're gonna get into some spiritual conversations. It works like a charm. So the first meeting, we have that conversation. What do you do? You're a pastor. And then everything changes from then on. But the great thing is that we've been having really, really open, candid, spiritual discussions. So he's in here like cranking on my back and we're talking about theology and Bible. And, and he was raised Catholic and he was a, a pretty devout Catholic throughout his, his, uh, his upbringing. But now he considers himself an agnostic. And he said he saw some things in the Catholic church that really hurt him and turned him away. But the other thing that he pointed out was that when he would read the Old Testament, 
He was very disturbed by who God in the Old Testament was. In fact, he thinks it's a a bit of a contradiction with Jesus in the New Testament. But the God of the Old Testament, in his opinion, is jealous and he's vengeful and he's petty and filled with unrestrained wrath. And so I'm praying for this man and we're continuing to have conversations. But his perspective is not unique to him. I've heard that from plenty of people. That when you look at passages like this, the the sense that we get is, oh my gosh, God is over the top. God is, is filled with this vengeance and this anger that is uncontrolled. And so the question becomes, is he right? I mean, is God overly jealous and vindictive and therefore not worth our time? R.C. Sproul has been one of the most helpful thinkers for me about the subject of God's holiness in general and about Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6 in particular. Um, I would highly recommend probably his most famous work called The Holiness of God to all of you to read. But R.C. Sproul points out that Uzzah's mistake, his great mistake here in this chapter, was in presuming that the dirt was more polluted than his hand. Sproul rightly points out that for the Ark of the Covenant to touch the dirt would have been no offense to God. The dirt has never once lived in violation to God's created order or God's commands. Dirt does what dirt's supposed to do. But for an unholy, sinful creature to attempt to take hold of the throne of God was a violation of God's holiness and an affront to his holiness. And therefore merited this response. Uzzah's hand was what was actually polluted and dirty. Uzzah's hand was the only thing in this situation that could have possibly been an offense to the presence of God. It is worth noting that God did not lash out against Uzzah or the people of Israel for the very first law that they violated. And therefore, God was already showing patience and forbearance toward uh, David and all of Israel. The very fact that they were transported in the ark on a cart, rather than having the Kohathites carry it on poles, was a direct violation of God's law. In Numbers Numbers chapter 7 verse 9, Moses is giving instructions to the Kohathites about transporting the sacred things. It says, but to the sons of Kohath, he gave none, referring to carts, because they were charged with the service of the holy things that, notice, ought to be, were better off being carried this way. No, 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 what does it say? That had to be carried on the shoulder. God's law was abundantly clear. They weren't even given carts. Because the Ark of the Covenant, which had gold rings attached at all four corners so that wood poles could be run through it, so that it would be transported on their shoulders, they were supposed to always carry this on their shoulders and not in a cart. And when you stop and think about it, had they, had they followed God's instructions regarding how to transport the Ark, Uzzah would have never been in this perilous situation in the first place. The Ark would have been safely secured on their shoulders. R.C. Sproul notes that in the Old Testament, there are over 30 capital crimes. 
there are over 30 different things that the people of God could do that would, would be such a violation that God's judgment on them would actually be that they should die. Now, many people will find it shocking that the penalty is death for so many violations of God's law. It could be things like violating the Sabbath or taking God's name in vain or even dishonoring your parents could rise to that level. And then, of course, things like murder. But again, many people hear that and they go, wow, over 30 different laws resulted in a person's death? What a wrathful God we have in the Old Testament. But Sproul rightly points out that what is actually shocking is not that so many violations resulted in the death penalty, but that so few violations resulted in the death penalty. When we go back to the beginning, to the Genesis account, when God created our first parents, God creates them and he places them in a garden called delight. That's what Eden means. And it's an apt word for it. Everything is perfect. Everything is flourishing. They have peace with creation. They have harmony with the animal kingdom. They have an abundance of food. They're walking with God. Everything is perfect. And God gives them one rule in the Garden of Eden. It's in Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The fact that every human sin does not result in the immediate death of the one who commits it is sheer mercy from God. And we need to see it that way. God warned us, the day that you violate my word and my law, you will surely die. And the fact that, again, every lie we tell, every person we slander, every immoral thought that we have, the fact that God doesn't strike us dead like Uzzah in the moment can only be traced back to God's sheer and unbelievable mercy. The fact that episodes like the death of Uzzah are so rare in the pages of Scripture should remind all of us that God's general operating principle in this world is one of unimaginable patience and undeserved mercy. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul tells us what effect the patience and the mercy of God is supposed to happen or is supposed to have on us. He says that God's patience and God's mercy is meant to lead us to repentance. We're supposed to, as God's creatures, say, oh my gosh, even though I violate God's commands at, at, at so many different points in my life, God does not strike me dead. The fact that he doesn't do that should cause us to say, I want to live for God. I'm going to turn away from my sin and begin to follow him and trust him. He must be a good God. He must be a wonderful God. He's certainly worthy of my obedience. But unfortunately for most people, God's kindness and God's patience doesn't lead to repentance. It leads to presumption. Instead of repenting, we tend to exploit God's mercy. 
we begin to think to ourselves that God doesn't care if we sin. Or that even if he does care, there's nothing that he can do about it. And so Sproul agrees with Catholic theologian Hans Kuhn, who essentially said, and I want to quote this, listen to this. He said, I don't know the secret counsel of God. I can't read the deity's mind. But I wonder if the reason we find periodically in the scripture, this swift and sudden exercise in justice, is that perhaps God finds it necessary to interrupt his normal pattern of long-suffering, forbearing, grace, and mercy to remind us that he is just. And this makes sense, right? I mean, if God never ever gave any examples of him actually giving justice, the soul that sins shall surely die. If there were never examples of God doing that, we would all not believe that God is just and that sin will be judged. And I want you this morning to just stop and think about your own attitude towards sin, Christian. I mean, doesn't this all bear out in your own practice? Aren't there certain sins in your life that you just tolerate or even justify or excuse? And even though you probably wouldn't say it this way, doesn't that communicate a belief that God either doesn't care about your sin or that even if he does care about it, he's not going to do anything about it? Because God's all mercy. He's all grace. He's all kindness. He's not going to take your sin seriously. So why should you? I would venture to say that if God's normal operating principle in the world was the experience of Uzzah, Or for a New Testament example, Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit in front of the church and God struck them dead on the spot. If that was God's normal operating principle in the world, I would suggest to all of us that we would take sin a lot more seriously. Right? There would be a holy fear and a dread of every single sin. We wouldn't just pass off our sin as no big deal or ignore our sin. And so here at this critical moment in Israel's history where worship of the Lord is being established in Jerusalem, God makes a very clear statement. I will be regarded as holy. There are no exceptions. And God's holiness is a danger to unholy people like Uzzah and you and me and every person for that matter. And this means that David's question in verse 9, how can the ark come to me, is just as important today as it was thousands of years ago. How can this holy God come to us? How can God ever live with us? Well, thankfully, there's an answer to this question. There is a way to get to the ark, get the ark to Jerusalem. And because of that, there is a way to receive blessing rather than judgment from the presence of of God. And we see it here in this passage, the blessing of God's presence. It begins in verse 11. Here's what we read. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And what happens? And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Tim Chester writes this, and I love it. He says, I'll put it on the screen for you. We can't live with God because he is dangerous to sinners. 
but we can't live without him either because God is the source of all good things. This is the dilemma humanity finds ourselves in. Notice with me that the same ark that brought calamity on Uzzah brings blessing to Obed-Edom. And through God's blessing of this man, David is once again assured of what he always knew, that he can't live without God. Because ultimately, all true blessing comes from the presence of God. And so David here renews his commitment and his resolve to get the ark of God transported to the city of Jerusalem. But we've got to see something here. David now learns from his mistakes. You know, Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 says this. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear that God struck into David's heart three months before was for David's good. It wisened David up. That fear made him stop and go, oh my gosh, this is a dangerous God. This God should not be trifled with. And he began on a path of wisdom because now he makes sure that he and all of the people take the proper steps in order to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Just notice the differences between this time and the first time. Look at verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. There are two things here that are very important that David does differently. First, the ark is now being moved the right way. It's being carried, right? It says those who bore the ark of the Lord, whenever they had gone six steps. So the ark is being carried now. In 1 Chronicles chapter 15, we read of the parallel account of this same event. And actually, 1 Chronicles 15 gives a lot more detail than 2 Samuel chapter 6. Here's 1 Chronicles 15, 15. It says, And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So the Kohathites, who were Levites, are now carrying the ark on their shoulders with the poles. And again, look at it. It's on the screen there. As Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So now they're being obedient. Now they're carrying the ark the right way. But the second thing that's different here is now the ark is being carried by the right people. It's being moved by the right people. Going back to 1 Chronicles 15, just backing up a couple verses, here's what we read. Then David summoned the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, and the Levites, Uriel, Isaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Amenadab, and said to them, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So they carry it, they move it the right way and it's being moved by the right people. Why are the priests and the Levites the right people? 
Oh, because God says so, of course. That's part of it. But there is a deeper reason. And the reason is this. Because the priests and the Levites had been consecrated or set apart by the Lord to do so. They had been made holy by the Lord to interact with a holy God. They were set apart for this. Again, in verse 14, I mean, just look at it. It says, so the priests and the Levites did what? They consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. How were they consecrated? Well, in Exodus 29, the priests were washed. They were dressed in special clothing. They were anointed with oil. And then lastly, animals were sacrificed for their sins. And notice here that at the beginning of this journey then, they consecrate themselves, they sacrifice animals to cover their sins so that they can interact with the Holy God. And then they sacrifice animals every six steps over the course of miles until they get to Jerusalem. Family, now we have the answer to the question that David asks. How can God live with us? How can this holy God come to dwell with us? Here's the answer. We, like the Levites and the priests, must be made holy through sacrifice. There's no other way. But here's the great turn of the gospel. The sacrifices of bulls and goats could never, ever, ever remove our sins. They could only temporarily cover them. And so a different sacrifice would be required and it would be the Lamb of God who came and took away the sins of the world. In Hebrews 10.10, we are told that we have been sanctified or set apart as holy. How? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So family, how can we, unholy people, have God dwell with us? The answer is we have been made holy. We've been sanctified through the death of Jesus where he removed our sins and made us righteous. And only because of that, Can any person come before this dangerous God and experience blessing rather than calamity? This is how it works. I wonder this morning if you've put your faith in Jesus so that you have been sanctified or set apart as holy through his death. So the ark is brought successfully here. To Jerusalem now because they did it the right way and it brings great joy to David and all of the people. This occasion is marked by shouting and singing and dancing. In short, it's worship. They are having a worship service mile after mile until they enter the city of Jerusalem. And notice that once the ark gets set in its place, blessing flows out to the people. Here's verse 17 again. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, 
a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. What a beautiful picture of God's blessing now as the ark is established in Jerusalem. Again, the same God whose presence brought calamity now brings blessing. And what has changed is that the the people have approached him on his terms and not their own. And family, we are reminded here that all true worship must first and foremost be directed by God's word and not subjective feelings, intuitions, or personal preferences. Intuitively, what Uzzah did made a lot of sense. That's why we even empathize with him. But ultimately, it led to his death. It is only when they begin to worship according to God's holy word that God's blessing flows out to them. Worship needs to obey this book. Everybody clear on that? But it doesn't stop there. Worship also needs to engage the heart. And this is the final movement in the story, delighting in God's presence. Look at verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, this is crazy. David's like, he's still glowing from the day's celebrations and activities. He's just stood before the people as God's king and he's blessed all of them and given gifts to all of the people and they all go home to probably continue partying and celebrating. God is with us and God is blessing us. And David wants to go to his own house and he wants to bless his own family and continue the party there. But as he tries, his plans get derailed. Michael, his wife, comes out to meet him. Doesn't even, he doesn't even get in the door. She's like, comes on outside. And she doesn't meet him with a smile and a kiss. This isn't a honey, I'm so glad you're home today. She meets him with sarcasm and harsh criticism. This is not the best way to meet your spouse after a hard day at work, okay? It's not going to go well and it doesn't go well for her. According to her, David has dishonored himself. He's behaved in a way that is unbecoming of his office. His worship was way too over the top for her. Go back to verse 14. This might make some of us here uncomfortable. It says, David danced before the Lord with all his might. I mean, David is working at his worship here. He's dancing before the Lord with all of his might. He's going for it. This is unrestrained, unbridled worship and devotion. And it's just too much for her. It's too over the top for her. Shoot, it's probably too over the top for a room full of Baptists like us. I mean, this man's working up a sweat out here, dancing and celebrating and singing before the Lord. But to Michael, he was embarrassing himself and she's disgusted. In her mind, her father, Saul, who used to be a king, would have never, ever stooped so low. He would have never behaved like this. 
Now, admittedly, it's really hard for us to know exactly what is meant by uncovering himself, which is her accusation. Sometimes people will talk about David dancing around in his underwear or David dancing naked here in this this passage. Um, I can assure you that's not what's happening. We know David is dressed. We know David is not dressed in an inappropriate way. In verse 14, we're told he's wearing a linen ephod. A linen ephod was what priests would wear. It was a common priestly garment. In fact, back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 18, that's what Samuel the prophet and the priest is wearing. It's a linen ephod. Not to mention that over in 1 Chronicles 15, 27, David there is also, he's wearing a linen ephod and he's wearing a robe of fine linen. So David is not naked and David's not dressed in a way that's inappropriate. He's not running around church in his underwear. So it's more likely that if we take uncovering himself to mean exposing himself, which is the way the ESV seems to be taking it in the NIV, if we take it to mean he's exposing himself, then what happened was that David was dancing and celebrating in such a way that he unintentionally showed too much skin and exposed himself. Remember, at this day and age, they did not wear pants, they wore robes. And so that could have been what happened. Another possibility comes from the fact that the Hebrew word for uncover could also mean to reveal, to show, or to display. And so the idea here could be that by wearing simple priestly garments and not his royal clothing, David was revealing himself to look no different and act or behave no differently than all of the worthless or just common people that were out in this procession. Either way, in Michael's eyes, the issue is that David is acting in a way that is unbecoming of his royal office. And she's not happy about it. But guess what? She is totally missing the point as David shows. Look at verse 21. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house. That's pretty cutting, huh? Told you she's going to get it right here. It was before the Lord who chose me above your dad and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And now he's defiant. Look at this. And I will celebrate before the Lord. He's still not done. He's got another verse. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. Actually, that's probably in the Hebrew. I will be abased in my eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. David's audience was not the people. And it certainly wasn't the female slaves of his servants. David says it was before the Lord who had chosen him. Michael is concerned with what the people might think, but David is concerned with what God thinks about him. Who cares if others misjudge his worship? It's not for them anyways. And who cares if other people think less of me, David says. He's secure in his identity. He says, God chose me. And friends, right here, David gives all of us the key that will free you from being controlled by the opinions of others. Being secure in your identity as a chosen child of God will free you 
from unhealthy forms of worrying about what others think about you. Michael is consumed with what the people are going to think about her husband. You're embarrassing yourself. You're acting like they are. And David couldn't care less. He says, listen, God God chose me. He appointed me king. Their opinions don't matter to me. And again, he's defiant. He says, I'll celebrate even more before the Lord. I'm willing to endure even greater humiliation than this rather than restrain myself in worshiping my God. And so as this chapter ends, we see that for David, worship is not just about obeying the book, which a lot of you got real excited about when I said that earlier. It's not only about obeying the book, although that's terribly important as David has learned. Worship must also engage the heart. David loves the Lord. How could his worship be cold or disinterested or emotionless? Now, most Christians and most churches lean more to one side of this than the other. There are plenty of Christians and plenty of churches who pound this into your head. We worship by the book. We worship by the book. Paul says, in fact, that worship must be orderly in 1 Corinthians 14 because there the church at Corinth was getting a little bit out of control. Things were being done in a disorganized way. So we worship by the book. And our worship is primarily mental and it's cerebral and it's just about our thoughts being ordered right. And oftentimes in the hearts of Christians like this and in churches like this, we're very, very skeptical and sometimes even harshly critical like Michael here of what we perceive to be emotion or excessive forms of emotionalism or excitement by other people. But there is another extreme. It's the anything goes, bro, crowd. Whatever I feel is appropriate. Hey, worship is just about me and God. And so I can do whatever I want. You can't judge me. Your opinions don't sway me. So if I want to run up and down the aisles, or if I want to get on the stage and grab an instrument and just start playing my own riff in the middle of a worship song, or if I want to stand on my chair and I want to scream and shout and jump around, that's between me and God. Don't judge me. The Bible's so helpful. It offers us a beautiful corrective balance to both of the extremes. Worship must be orderly. It must be biblical. But it also must engage the heart. Our emotions ought to be present. Ultimately, the chapter ends with David's wife being judged. And she's judged with an inability to have kids from that day forward. Clearly, God is not pleased that Michael is more eager to criticize David's worship than offer her own. And so I wonder about you as we bring this sermon to a close. Are you eager to offer your worship to God? Is that what most concerns you as you gather with the people of God from Sunday to Sunday? Is that what your mind is thinking about? Is God, I'm here to worship you. That's what I'm here to do. That's what I'm concerned about. Is that what most concerns you as you scatter throughout the community during the week? God, I exist to worship you. I'm devoted to you. I love you. I live for you. Perhaps this week, all of us should sit and ponder the answer to that question. This chapter has shown us what what is at stake in worshiping a holy God. 
Mr. Beaver is certainly right. He isn't safe, but he is good. And God's goodness is revealed to us over and over and over again in his unbelievable patience and mercy with every one of our sins. But family, let us close with this. Nowhere is his goodness displayed more than in his making us holy through the sacrifice of his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, to Christ alone should all worship and honor and glory be directed now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.